This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast on open pediatrics. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. We are very pleased to have with us today Dr. Michael Dean. Dr. Dean is Professor and Vice Chair of Research in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He directs the Clinical Trials Office in the department and serves as the Associate Dean for Clinical Research at the University of Utah Health. Many of us have known Mike over the decades as the principal investigator of several large national consortia, as well as data resource centers. Most recently and currently, he is the principal investigator for the National EMSC Data Analysis Resource Center and the Central Data Management and Coordinating Center for the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. He is also the principal investigator for the Pediatric Critical Care Scientist Development Program, K-12, and the Data Coordinating Center for the Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network, both funded by the National Institutes of Child Health and Diseases. Mike, welcome. I have heard from colleagues about a talk that you gave recently, and that is why I've invited you here today to tell us your thoughts about ChatGPT and how it could potentially impact the field of pediatric critical care in particular, and of course, the field of medicine in general. But before we begin our conversation, what is ChatGPT, Mike? Well, ChatGPT is a ultra-sophisticated version of a neural network that has been trained with a massive amount of data. Neural network refers to the notion that computers could be created by mimicking the human brain, which of course has neurons in it connected by axons. And neurons have a property of only either being activated or non-activated. So when we are thinking, our nerves are transmitting either ones or zeros, if you like to think about it that way, to the neurons that they're connected with. Neural networks were really invented in the 1950s, long before computer power was sufficient to make them useful. But now there are a variety of neural networks that have been used for different types of classification schemes and so forth. And the amount of computer power that's available is immense. When you take a set of algorithms that are made into a neurons in a neural network, you train the network by exposing it to training information. For example, I could expose a computer to a picture of a bird and give the species name. And, and then I could expose it to another picture of a bird and give it another species name. And today on a laptop, you can build a classifier so that a neural network can recognize and classify birds in less than one hour by training it with several thousand birds and words to give it the species identification. So neural networks are, are really coming into their own over the last 15 years because of computer power. In November of 2022, OpenAI, which is a company that was originally founded to unleash artificial intelligence in a benign and good, benevolent manner on humanity, released ChatGPT. GPT refers to a generative pre-programmed or pre-trained transformer. And so these models are called language transformers. 
programmers, and they've been trained, and ChatGPT in particular, has been trained with the entire opus of the internet up to 2021. That is, everything that was available to be written that was in the internet was used to train this neural network, which has got many thousands of layers in it. And the result of it is this network has been trained to predict what the next word would be based on its experience with exposure to the entire network. Now, to train this required about a billion dollars worth of computer machinery with tens of thousands of graphic processor units and hundreds of thousands of CPUs with which everybody on this podcast is familiar and required over a year to train it. And recently, I think many people have heard that Microsoft is incorporating chat GPT technology into their Bing browser. And Microsoft has invested $10 billion in this company to move this forward. So ChatGPT was released for public experimentation, and when one logs into ChatGPT, one can very quickly start to think that they're talking to a highly intelligent computer and can ask questions about virtually anything. Now, Mike, my next question is really to ask you, how did you get involved in this? But before I do, we're recording this on March 16th and ChatGPT4 was just released several days ago. What is in brief ChatGPT4? How is that different than ChatGPT3 or 3.5? ChatGPT is based on GPT 3.5. 3.5 has in it close to 200 billion parameters. GPT 4 was just released and I've not had an opportunity to explore it or determine how many parameters are in it, but there have been estimates that the number of parameters number in the trillions and chat GPT is presumably going to become based on version 4 of GPT. But to my knowledge, it's not yet released to the public. I think it's been released. The company has made some examples of what GPT-4 can do, but there's not an interface to which the public yet can explore that. What I think we're going to see, though, is GPT-4 is going to be much, much better than GPT-3.5. And I think subsequently we will see versions 4.5 and 5 and so forth. And we will also see similar language models uh, or transformers from Google and from other companies that are developing these things. There are a number of companies have been developing these language transformer models and have hesitated to release them because of the potential that people will believe things that might not be true. And Mike, obviously, I'm hopeful that you can take us to how you see this being used in medicine and pediatric critical care in particular. But before we get there, just briefly, how did you become absorbed in this? Was it based on all of your experience being the PI of all of these consortia and data resource centers? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, actually, Jeff, it's interesting that my exposure to this technology really arose by accident because of a hobby interest that I have in medical computer simulation. I've had an interest in medical simulation since the 1970s when I was a resident, and I encountered a computer program that was published in 1972 called MacPuff. And MacPuff was a program that simulated human respiration and oxygen delivery. I translated this program into numerous languages over the course of 30 years, and I corresponded with the authors. This program was actually used to predict ventilator changes and other changes in real human patients in the early 1980s. 
that effort was not continued forward. And I last corresponded with one of the authors of those efforts about 10 years ago, and they never moved forward with it. And currently they're all dead. So the simulation idea that I had was that there would be simulation in our monitors, in our ventilators, in all of our devices, and that people would be able to predict what would happen with the patient before they actually implemented an intervention. Now, this program has fascinated me, and I've become fascinated with the ubiquitous nature of iPhones. And so I've been programming a version that would run on the iPhone. And in the course of developing the software, I heard about ChatGPT, and then I went on ChatGPT to ask it to write part of a subroutine that I needed for this program. It immediately wrote the subroutine in one computer language. I asked it to write it in another computer language and got an immediate response. And then I finally said, I need this to run in Swift, which is the language used on Apple iOS. And it immediately produced a version of the subroutine and explained how to use it and also gave an example and demonstrated that it worked. So that's how I became aware of this product. I also asked it to write some other things. I asked it to explain the routine to me in Czech. I asked it to explain it to me in Chinese, and it was immediately able to spew out what might have been correct. I don't speak Czech, nor can I read Chinese, but the capability to do that was absolutely fascinating and compelling. I will say that the routine that it gave me looked like it should work, but when I actually tested it in the Apple iOS environment, it did not work. And so this is one of the worries and risks of this program, which is that it can give an answer to you that seems plausible, but it can be completely wrong. And that's one of the issues that's going to come up, I think, when we get into what happens in medicine, when people incorporate this tool into their lives. Well, can I ask, Mike, how is, you know, obviously people are toying with loosely sometimes called AI, but how is chat GPT being used in medicine now? Can you give us some examples? Well, I think before I give you examples of how it's used in medicine, I'll give you some examples that are medical in nature to give you an idea of sort of how inspiring and compelling this program is. I asked ChatGPT if it could simulate oxygen transport in the lung, because that was the subject of the simulation that I just described. And it said, yes, there are ways to do that. My next request was to write a Fortran simulation of oxygen transport, and it immediately spewed out a several-page computer program in Fortran. Interestingly, it initialized some variables for this model, and it initialized the lung volume to be 5 liters, the alveolar surface area of 100 square meters, oxygen concentration of 21%, and a blood flow rate of 5 liters per minute. And I didn't tell it any of those things. So it was able to put those things into the simulation without any prompting from me. And the simulation, of course, was quite simple. It was only several pages long. But it amazed me because I said, why does it know that lung volume is related to oxygen transport in the lungs? And why does it know that the approximately normal value is five liters per minute? I had to look up alveolar surface area normals to discover that chat GPT was accurate. On the other hand, it also thought that the oxygen consumption rate is three liters per minute, which of course is grossly erroneous. And so looking at the overall program and seeing that a variety of amazingly correct facts are in there can make a observer not notice that some of the facts that are in there are wrong. So I decided to get a little bit more clinical and 
I asked it to write a progress note or a consult on a patient in the pediatric intensive care unit. So I said that there's a four-year-old female with respiratory failure due to RSV on a mechanical ventilator with an IMV of 23, PIP 30, PEEP 8, FiO2 80%, hemodynamically unstable on an epinephrine drip, no allergies or other previous medical history. That's all I gave the program. And so it immediately printed out a paragraph that is rather intriguing. It said, this four-year-old female patient is in respiratory failure due to RSV and is currently being treated in the pediatric intensive care unit. She is receiving mechanical ventilation with an inspiratory to expiratory ratio of 23, peak pressures and so forth. And it went on and on and on for a paragraph. So it did not know what IMV means. It thought it was inspiratory to expiratory ratio. So I typed into the conversation with chat GPT and said, IMV means intermittent mandatory ventilation rate. And it then responded, thank you for the clarification. In that case, the patient is receiving mechanical ventilation with an intermittent mandatory ventilation rate of 23. This means that the ventilator is providing a set number of breaths per minute, parenthesis 23, and the patient is also able to trigger additional breaths on their own if needed. Needed. The remainder of the note I won't read, but the fact that it can be corrected and then is largely correct in what it presents means that it becomes compelling to the user. Now, I gave it a blood gas afterwards that had some hypercapnia in it, and I said what interventions would be appropriate. It gave an explanation and an interpretation of the blood gas and said interventions that may be appropriate include increasing the ventilator settings, which is what you would expect. I then said, okay, I increased the tidal volume and the blood pressure dropped. The epinephrine drip dose was increased without benefit. What is the next step? And it gives a half-page answer that sort of reminds one of the trainee that doesn't completely know the right answer and sort of blathers on stuff that is, you know, undoubtedly correct, such as checking for potential causes of hemodynamic instability. But it did say one of the potentially appropriate interventions is administering fluids and blood products as needed to correct any underlying hypovolemia and anemia, which is, to me, quite amazing that this thing could even come close to giving an interpretation and an answer that makes some sense. Well, Mike, let's get a little further into some specifics. And I'm sitting here listening to you, and I'm wondering, is this going to evolve in our field as principally a decision support tool? People are talking about how the iPhone changed the world. Is this going to change decision support for clinicians in the ICU over the next several years? Or do you think this is really going to emerge first, probably perhaps into medical education, that we won't have to try to store so many facts in our brains, which you know are biodegradable, that decay at some rate for all of us. How do you answer that? Well, Jeff, I think I would answer it in the same manner as if you asked me, is Google ever used by physicians or medical students or patients to solicit medical information and to reach medical conclusions? And I think we would acknowledge that Google's probably used far more often than we wish it was used. The difference between ChatGPT and Google is that Google output is not synthesized in a way that makes it 
so believable that you've reached the right fact that you can be convinced of it. And I think that what's going to happen is people are going to use ChatGPT for learning about things. And ChatGPT gives very good answers if you ask it to explain to you the Kelman equations of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. It can do that. You could ask it to explain what is the meaning of an integral in calculus, and it's going to give you an answer that's likely to be 80 to 90% correct. And like I said, I gave the example of that little consult note, and when I corrected ChatGPT, it corrected itself and also understood what intermittent mandatory ventilation means. I have seen some YouTube videos of medical students who are describing using ChatGPT to help them write their consult notes and to help them write progress notes. And I think that that's extremely worrisome because I told you that in the simulation that ChatGPT wrote, it had an oxygen consumption for a normal human of three liters per minute, when of course that's off by tenfold. So the risk is that ChatGPT and its descendants won't have been trained with accurate data and instead, of course, has been trained with the whole opus of the internet. And so we know that the internet contains many valuable pieces of information and also vast amounts of misinformation. So I think one of our challenges is how do we get medical information into the training of these types of tools so that there's less likelihood of inaccuracy? There are other areas where I think it will be used and I think is already being used for clerical problems. You can ask ChatGPT to summarize a body of text, and it's quite good at that. So I would envision that people will be incorporating this into writing summaries of hospital admissions and discharges. I have seen examples of letters being written by ChatGPT to request that an insurer approve a diagnostic test in a specific disease condition in a specific patient and included references in the letter of authorization. So there are a number of clerical types of tasks that physicians and nurses and people throughout the healthcare system have to do where ChatGPT has an enormous amount of potential to be useful today because I think it's pretty easy to detect if there are errors in those types of letters and summaries. But my real worry is that medical students and junior physicians and future trainees will become less and less expert with underlying physiology, underlying pharmacology, and the science that underlies what we do in the pediatric intensive care unit. And they will believe what comes out of the computer is accurate. And this is just as, as I said, with Google, most of the time Google gives you information, but you have to look it up and it's not organized, but ChatGPT organizes it. And I think what's going to happen is that we need to be so expert that we can detect when there is a little error inside of what we're hearing from these types of transformer models. And that is the opposite of what we would like to happen because we don't want people to rely on these tools and stop having an underlying basic knowledge of the physiology under the medicine. Mike, this is really a sobering warning for all of us. But at the same time, you've said to me earlier, this is here to stay. So what are the next steps for the pediatric critical care community that you would outline 
how should we proceed with chat GPT, both to inform it, but also to maybe promulgate guidelines on the use of it in decision support or in education? Well, I think there are several things we can do as a pediatric critical care community. The first thing is to not bury our heads in the sand and pretend that this is not here to stay. This is here to stay. And I think that we need to help ourselves and our trainees and our clinical colleagues know how to interact with patients who are using ChatGPT and let them become familiar with the tool so that we can identify and mitigate the potential risks of misinformation. The second thing we can do, which is a much more long-term thing, but it can't be too long-term because these models are coming out at a rapid pace, is to figure out a way that large bodies of of data concerning medicine in general, critical care for our community, are able to be used to help train these models so that these models become increasingly accurate. As an example, many people are probably familiar with the MIMIC database. That's the M-I-M-I-C database that's been developed at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Beth Israel Hospital. This database is on its fourth rendition and is a database of critically ill patients that includes waveforms, vital signs, medications, and essentially all aspects of the hospitalizations of many thousands of patients. One example of, and it's been broken into a variety of subsets. And so there is a subset called MIMIC 4 CXR, which is chest X-ray images. And that particular database has nearly 380,000 images available that have been interpreted and that are basically curated. And these types of images can be used to help train these types of artificial intelligence applications to look correctly at and understand what they're looking at if they start to interpret chest x-rays. Similarly, the virtual PICU and the Pediatric Data Collective have amassed several million ICU admissions with detailed information about the entire hospitalization. I think it would be a useful thing to do to explore with these large companies how their massive computer power might be partnered with medicine to help train those models so that they can be used in a specific way in different subspecialties and could become very valuable parts of a clinical decision support tool. If you spend any time with ChatGPT, I think you will conclude that it does have an immense potential to be used as a clinical support tool. The risk is that it may be trained on incorrect data, and that's really the essence. Can we get our clinical data into the training set of these types of transformers and then have maybe a specialty version that's available inside of hospitals or inside of the healthcare system to provide accurate decision support? Well, Dr. Mike Dean, this has really been such an illuminating, and I'm sitting here and thinking timely and important for all practitioners to realize because it's here now. And before we conclude, tell us a little bit about how this was developed, because you know certainly OpenAI, the company that originated ChatGPT, is concerned about misinformation. What are the protections that exist in this technology to try to prevent misinformation? Jeff, that's a really excellent question. One of the statements I made earlier was that the training set of information used for these models is the opus of the internet. And you could 
quickly recognize that if there are stereotypes in that data set, then the model will have stereotypes in it also. For example, if you said, can you give me a bunch of pictures of doctors in the doctor's office? It's likely that the response might be overwhelmingly male doctors because it may have encountered more instances of doctors being male than being female in the course of looking over the vast, vast contents of the internet. So there are efforts to make sure that information that goes into it is countered by training the model to specifically avoid stereotypes that could be bad to have in the results that you get out. Similarly, I could ask ChatGPT how to build a nuclear bomb and it probably has been exposed to enough information to be able to provide that. But training has gone into this to prevent it from doing certain things that are explicitly evil. And so there are additional training materials that go into this to prevent it from doing things that are hostile or evil or otherwise morally unacceptable from a society standpoint. The hallucination is a word that is used for when these models make up facts completely. Uh, they make them up because they're predicting based on what they've been trained with. And so human reinforcement is also being used to help train these models to be more accurate and more appropriate. But that's one of the tasks that the companies building these models are very aware of. Well, Dr. Mike Dean, thank you for an absolutely fascinating and timely and important talk on ChatGPT. You know, you're renowned in the field for, as I mentioned earlier, being the PI on several important national consortia. You manage several large data coordinating centers. And now through a personal interest, you tell me you've become, I think, a thought leader already on this evolving technology. So we look forward to having you back in a year's time to talk about this and how it's evolved. But on behalf of all of us and the open pediatrics community across the world, thank you for this talk today. And thanks for all of the work that you've been doing for the field. Thank you for your kind words, Jeff. And thanks for having me. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 